Amen. Thank you for being here to worship with us. Miss Wagner, thank you for being here. Happy 100th birthday. Uh, we are returning this morning to our sermon series in Mark. I looked up this past week. We started this sermon series in November of 2020. And we took a break over the past couple of months, and now we're resuming, and we should finish in March in a couple of months as well. We are picking up right where we left off, which is Mark chapter 13. And by the way, a little disclaimer, this is probably the hardest uh, section in Mark. There's a lot of different interpretations out there, a lot of challenges with how to interpret it, some of the issues involved, end times, uh, some of the questions are, you know, these certain events that happen, have they already happened? Have they not yet happened? Have they partially happened but not yet fully been fulfilled? And so these are the kinds of debates that exist around this chapter. So it raises the question, how do we approach a challenging passage like this? And the answer is, we approach it the same way we approach every other passage. We want to let the text speak for itself. Right? We want to let God's Word speak for itself. So our goal is to go in and figure out what does it say, what does it mean. We're looking for the simplest, plainest explanation that makes sense of the passage. We are trying our hardest to not sort of read into it our preconceived uh, systems of thought. We want to let God's Word be God's Word. And then once we figure out what we think it means, then we can go test it uh, you know, against other Scriptures and see if it seems consistent. Uh, we also want to make sure that we emphasize what the text is emphasizing. Sometimes we have a tendency to sort of go down these rabbit trails. Well, this really interests me. Let's go this way. Okay, that's fine, but what's the main point here? We always want to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And the goal is always application, right? We want to understand it, not just so we understand it. We want to understand it so we can apply it faithfully, right? So if you leave here understanding this passage, but it makes no difference, um, I've not done my job and you've not done your job. Right? And so, of course, we don't want to apply it unless it's actually God's Word. So this highlights the goal, which is always the goal of biblical preaching. Right understanding of the text so that we can faithfully apply it for God's glory and our joy. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark 13. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read verses 14 through 27. And this is the very inspired Word of God. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect 
from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning we are Your people, this is Your Word, and therefore, as Your people, we need to hear it. So we pray that You'd give us right understanding of this text, uh, not just merely so we understand it, but so that we live faithfully until that day when the Son of Man returns in the clouds with great power and glory to gather His elect. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our passage divides very naturally into two sections. Your Bible's probably divided up this way as well. Verses 14 through 23 is one section. And then verses 24 through 27 are a different section. And I think the first section is intended for us to particularly look to the past and focus on the past and then talk about what difference that makes for us today. And then I think the second section is intended for us to primarily look to the future and talk about what difference that makes for us today. So we're going to begin here by, by looking to the past and talking about why it matters today. And we're looking specifically at verses 14 through 23. And I just want to highlight several themes that we see here in this section. First of all, we see the sovereignty of God. This passage is about Jesus predicting something that will happen that has not yet happened in His day. In verse 23, he says to his disciples, I've told you all these things beforehand so that you'll be prepared when they happen. Right? Now we always have to keep in mind, what's the context here? That's always an important question. But when we, ha when we haven't been in this book for 10 weeks, it's especially important. So what's the context? At the beginning of Mark 13, if you remember, Jesus is with the disciples, they're in the temple. And the disciples comment about how glorious and wonderful this temple is. Isn't this so beautiful and wonderful? Look at this temple. And Jesus responds and says, I'm going to tell you the truth, guys. There's coming a day when not one of these stones will be left on top of the other. And this bothers them, rightly so. And they proceed to walk from the temple down the valley up to the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple. And they sit down and several of the disciples say, we just can't let that go. We've we, we got to follow up. We've got to ask you more about this. This is confusing to us. When you say nothing's going to be left, look at, look at Mark 13, verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They say, when is this going to happen? And what are the signs so we know it's about to happen? And then Jesus proceeds to answer their question. And that's what our text is. It's Jesus answering their question when is it going to happen? And what are going to be the signs? Now that conversation between Jesus and the disciples happens around 30 A.D. The temple is destroyed 40 years later in 70 A.D. So Jesus is making a very specific world event type of prediction about something that's going to happen in 40 years. Think about that. That's amazing. That'd be like someone today making a very specific world event type of prediction of something that's going to happen in 2062. How, how does he do that? It's the sovereignty of God. right? And we also need to keep in mind, Mark is the one who's recording this. And most conservative scholars seem to think that Mark wrote his gospel in the early 60s. So that's roughly 10 years before it happens. The more liberal scholars believe that he wrote it after 70 AD. Why? Because how could he possibly know that the temple is going to fall? Right? He just couldn't possibly know that. Of course, we know the answer. How could he know that? Because God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. And Mark is writing down the account of what Jesus 
says. We see the sovereignty of God here. But there's a second theme I want to highlight. We see the judgment of God in this passage. This terrible event that's going to happen to Jerusalem is not just something Jesus says is going to happen. Jesus is saying, God's going to do this. And it's going to be an act of His judgment that this temple is going to fall. And Matthew's account especially brings this out. Because if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew, uh, prior to this, just on the he- this is coming right on the heels of Jesus saying, Woe to you Pharisees! Woe to you hypocrites! Woe to you leaders! O Jerusalem! O Jerusalem! He laments. You kill God's prophets. And therefore, he says, this is what's about to happen to you. God's judgment is coming on you. There will not be one stone left upon the other. And that judgment comes. 70 A.D. It comes in the form of a foreign army which is often how the judgment of God comes on a nation. It often comes from another nation. In the Old Testament, it comes from Babylon. It comes from Assyria. God says, I'm going to take you out. And He does. And He does it through a foreign army. So in 70 AD, the foreign army that His judgment comes through is Rome. Luke's account highlights some of these details. Listen to Luke's parallel passage. Luke 21.20 Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Verse 24 of Luke 21, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles. So Jesus doesn't tell us when it's going to happen. He just tells His disciples it's going to happen. But He does tell them some signs to be looking out for. Here are some signs that are an indication it's about to happen. Verse 14, here's one of the signs. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where He ought not to be, that's one of the signs. Now what is this abomination of desolation? That's a fancy phrase, right? What is this? Well, the abomination is a reference to someone or something standing in God's place, standing where He shouldn't be specifically being in the temple. Someone in the temple who doesn't belong there, in the Holy of Holies. And the reason why it's called an abomination, it's an abomination to God, it's an abomination to God's people. And the reason why it's called an abomination of desolation is because God removes His presence. His presence is there to bless, but when someone uh, you know, is in there who doesn't need to be in there doing things they shouldn't be doing, it brings about God's wrath. He's no longer there present to bless, He's there present to curse. So it's an abomination of desolation. And Matthew tells us that, that, refer, uh, that, that Daniel referenced this. Daniel talked about this abomination of desolation. So you go back and read Daniel, and you'll see this phrase multiple times. I think about four in Daniel. Let me just read one of them. Daniel 11, verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now, most people believe that this this is immediately fulfilled in 167 B.C., about 500 years after Daniel writes. right? And and, and it's fulfilled in 167 B.C. when this uh, Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes goes into the temple of God and sacrifices a pig on the altar. God's temple... God's holy temple, certainly not supposed to have a pig in there, certainly not supposed to be sacrificing a pig. He sacrifices a pig, and he, he puts in a, an altar to Zeus in the temple of God. 
So this is an abomination of desolation. Something, someone being where they shouldn't be, in God's place. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, that same kind of thing that happened that Daniel talked about and was fulfilled in 167 B.C. that you all know about and you've heard about, that's going to happen again. And that's going to be one of the signs that you know this judgment's coming against Israel. So what is the specific fulfillment that Jesus is talking about? Most people believe it's when the Roman general Titus entered into the temple, entered into the Holy of Holies, where he shouldn't have been just prior to the temple's collapse. And by the way, guess what? The Bible teaches this kind of thing will happen again one day in our future. The man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, will be where he shouldn't be, sit where he shouldn't sit, try to place himself in God's place. And that'll be a sign before the second coming. But Jesus here is telling his disciples about this specific coming judgment of God. And it raises the question, why? Just so we can all sit here today and go, well, that's really interesting. No, he's telling them this. This brings us to the third theme, the salvation of God in judgment. The salvation of God in God's judgment. By the way, salvation and judgment always go together. You'll never find a place where you see God's judgment where you don't also see His salvation. And conversely, you'll never see a place where you see His salvation without also seeing His judgment. So Jesus is saying here to His disciples, the judgment is coming. And I'm telling you so that you can be saved from it, spared from it, delivered from it. You'll know the signs so that you can leave Jerusalem and be spared that coming judgment. That's why in verse 15, He says, don't go back in the house to get anything. If you're on the roof, go down the stairs, leave. Don't go into the house and get your wallet or your cell phone. Verse 16, don't get your coat if you're out working in the field. You're out working in the field, you left your coat a little ways away, ignore it, forget the coat, get out of town. Verse 17, it will be a terrible day for those who are pregnant or not swift with young babies. They will be vulnerable. Verse 18, pray it doesn't happen in winter. Why? It's not only colder in winter, but the the waters around Jerusalem will swell. And then it'll be harder to cross the streams, and then you can't get out quickly. Verse 19, In those days there will be such tribulation as, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. Now some people will point to this verse and they'll say, well, surely this can't be about an event that happened in 70 A.D. because it's saying it'll never be like this again. And the reply to that is, this is the kind of language the Bible uses to describe awful events. Let me give you another example of a place where the Bible uses this exact same kind of language to describe an awful event that has happened in history. Exodus 11.6 is a reference to the plague that God will send on Egypt and kill the firstborn child. Listen to Exodus 11.6. There shall be a great cry through all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. There'll never be another cry in Egypt like happened during that plague. And I think similarly, Jesus is saying, there will never be another day in Jerusalem like what's about to happen in 70 AD. And by the way, it is an awful day. The historian Josephus records that 1,100,000 people are killed in this event in 70 AD in Jerusalem. But notice Jesus says God is actually going to shorten it, put an end to it. Look at verse 20. For the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. So God's going to shorten it by His grace. By the way, the fact that it says God will shorten it also highlights His sovereignty in initiating it. 
He will initiate the judgment through Rome, and then He will shorten it by His grace. He'll shorten it for the elect. In other words, His people who are in the city, who for whatever reason couldn't get out, He will shorten it for them. We see God's grace in the fact that Jesus is warning His disciples. I'm warning you. I'm telling you. These are the signs. Look out for them. When they happen, get out of town because God's judgment is coming. He tells them what to do. Verse 23. This is the main command of the whole passage. But be on guard. That's the main command. Therefore, it's the main point. Be on guard. We see this command three times in Mark 13. Therefore, I think we should take it seriously. Be on guard. That's the main point. Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, I'm telling you these things so you can go draft up some end times tables and charts and discuss them and debate them among yourselves and be really fascinated with these kinds of things. No, Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that you'll be on guard. Be on guard for what? Well, verse 22. The false Christ and the false prophets who come along claiming to have some kind of special revelation, some new insight, He says, verse 22, they may even be performing special signs and wonders. But they're not teaching you what's consistent with what I've taught you. So be on guard. Watch out. It's going to happen. That's a good lesson for us today. It's good for us to be reminded. We need to be on guard against people coming along claiming to have some special insight, special revelation. Right? Watch out for the person who claims to know exactly when Jesus is going to return. Jesus Himself said He didn't know. The angels don't know. How arrogant to suggest that we know. Be on guard. Watch out. Those people exist. And I would say watch out even for the people who kind of read every newspaper article as being like, this is it. It's happening. right? Russia's invading Ukraine. This is it. This is the time. Go move to the mountains. Get out of town. right? I would say possibly. I can't tell you definitively that they're wrong, but I also, I mean, I don't know. So therefore, I would say, stay in school. Right? Don't quit school because you read that Russia is invading Ukraine. Right? Don't quit your job. You need the income. You need to take care of your family. You don't know. What if the Lord tarries for another 2,000 years? Plan accordingly. Right? We have to have a sense of the imminence. It certainly could happen any moment. We're told to think like that. But we're also told to be wise and plan and don't quit your day job. Right? So watch out for the people who are so you know, fanatical and every single headline is, this is it. right? Maybe, but I'd keep living your life. Right? Uh, another type of false prophet we hear from today, which also exists in the Bible, is the person who sort of says, you know, God's not really wrathful and He's not going to return with judgment and He loves everybody and we're all okay. I'm sure in the end it's going to all work out okay. And everything's heading in a good direction, by the way. right? We're all okay. He loves us all. So just don't worry about these things. No, we learn here. We learn from the past. We really need to be on guard. There really is judgment coming. Just look to the past and see the judgment of God. It's real. It's awful. I have a picture here to show you of Several years ago when we were in Israel, this is a picture taken from the Mount of Olives. So we're standing on the Mount of Olives, perhaps in the place where Jesus and the disciples were. We are overlooking the city. Uh, If you see the building with the gold dome on top, that's where the temple was. Uh, To this day, there's never been a temple there, a Jewish temple there since. 
since A.D. 70 when Jesus said it's going to be brought down. Initially, there was a Greek temple that was built to the god Jupiter in that place by the Roman emperor Hadrian. In 638 B.C., the Muslims came in after 638 and, and built what we have today, which is called the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim shrine. And by the way, the Muslims have control of that particular little piece of ground, and they don't allow non-Muslims to enter into it. So think about that. The, play, the one place in the world that's the, considered the most holy place by Jewish people is the one place that Muslims have control of, and they won't allow non-Muslims to enter. And the only thing standing, the only thing remaining of the original temple is a retaining wall, which is what we call the Western Wall. This next picture is a picture of us standing in front of the, the Western Wall, the retaining wall, which today Jewish people consider to be the most holy place, given that they are unable to, to go to the place where they believe the Holy of Holies was because there's a Muslim shrine there, the Dome of the Rock. So here's the point I'm making. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. The judgment of God is real. Jesus said a day is coming when this temple will not, one rock won't be left on top of the other. He turned out to be right. And there hasn't been since to this day. The judgment of God is real. But here's the good news. There's always salvation in the judgment. Salvation of God always comes with the judgment of God. Remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman when she asked, where does the true worship happen? And He said, there's coming a day really soon when neither on this mountain in this temple will the true worshipers worship or in Samaria or anywhere else because the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. What's he talking about? There's no longer a specific location. There's no longer a temple. There's no need because God has given us the ultimate temple in His Son. See, the salvation of God comes at the same time that the judgment of God comes. God sends His Son. God's people reject Him. Jerusalem rejects Him. What does God do? He sends judgment. He destroys the temple. But at the exact same time, He provides His Son. Who is what? The salvation of the world for all who will look on Him and call on Him. So we look to the past and we learn from the past the judgment is real. Therefore, we can know with confidence the judgment is coming. And yet there's salvation in judgment. Look to the past. Learn from the past. It's very significant for us today. But now let's transition and let's look to the future and talk about why it matters today as we look at verses 24-27, through 27, which are primarily about events that have not yet happened. Notice in verse 24, it says, after that tribulation. So these events that we're about to talk about happen after that tribulation. When? What's the date? We don't know. Jesus didn't tell us. In fact, Jesus said even the Son doesn't know. But He does give us a description. Listen to the description of what it will be like in that day. Verses 24 and 25. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now that language and those images come directly from the Old Testament. You'll find them in Isaiah. You'll find them in Ezekiel. You'll find them in Joel. Word for word. And the prophets refer to this day that Jesus is referring to as the day of the Lord. And sometimes the prophets refer to it as a terrible day, an awful day. Like, watch out. And sometimes that day of the Lord is described as a wonderful day, the day of salvation. And we have both of these realities here. 
Joel 2.11, for example, will say, great and awesome is that day, who can stand? It's great, it's awesome, who can stand? There's such great judgment. In Matthew's account, the parallel passage in Matthew, there's a reference to people mourning on this day when Christ returns. There will be great mourning that happens. And I think that's what Mark's describing here when he talks about the skies turning dark. He's describing an image of, of judgment. Like when the skies turn dark at Christ's crucifixion. Why were the skies turned dark? It's a sign. It's an indication. This is God's judgment. So one day when Christ returns, there will be, it will be a sign. Christ returning is a sign of judgment. A dark day. The, the sky is turning dark. Verse 26, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Who is they? They is the whole world. This is a public event recognizable to all. When the Son of Man returns, and of course this language of the Son of Man returning in the clouds comes straight from Daniel. Daniel 7, verses 13-14. And if you read that passage in Daniel, it emphasizes the King returns. The Son of Man is the King. He returns to establish His kingdom. All people will be subservient to Him. And He will reign and His kingdom will reign forever. And the Bible emphasizes, for most people, think about that, for most people, this will be an awful experience. For most people, they will not be clapping and saying, behold, He comes riding on the clouds. Because it will be proven to be true. Jesus is the King. And this will be something that they have rejected. And therefore, He'll reject them. And it will be an awful day, not just for many, for most. That's sobering. At the exact same time, it will be a wonderful, glorious day for God's people who are called here the elect. For God's people, they will be singing and clapping, behold, He comes riding on the clouds. Right? Notice this reference to what He's coming to do for them. Verse 27, He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. See, one of the images that we've seen so far in this passage is this image of scattering. God's people are scattered. In fact, Jesus tells them, scatter, leave, leave Jerusalem. So God's people are being scattered, but at the second coming, what happens? Jesus comes to gather them. He comes to return to gather those who have been scattered. At the first coming, there's a scattering of God's people. At the second coming, there's a gathering of God's people. And so I just want to highlight, as a result of this, several reasons why this day, Christ's second coming, is significant for us today. First of all, Christ's second coming gives us reason to keep going today. You know, Mark is writing this Gospel to the church at Rome who is starting to experience some of the persecution from Rome. The fire hadn't been turned up yet, but it's going to be. And they know it. And Mark's writing to them, telling them, telling them, giving them these words. You may be scattered, and they will be. But God is in control. Right? So, so be on guard. Watch out. Know this is a reality. Because what happens when we tend to get our worlds turned upside down and the fire turned up on us and when we experience our boat getting rocked? What do we tend to do? What is our natural tendency? M many times it's to quit. Like, I'm done. Right? I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm worn out. I think i got a plan. I think we're heading in this direction. All of a sudden, life gets turned upside down, scattered out, fire turned up. What do you want to do? Let's quit. Let's throw in the towel. 
And I'm sure that's how Mark's audience is feeling as they're reading. God's people being scattered. Yeah, but one day Jesus returns. And when He returns, He returns to gather those who have been scattered, those whose lives have been turned upside down by evil. And He's coming to gather. He's coming to save. So perhaps some of you feel this this morning. Perhaps you feel scattered. You feel like your boat's been turned upside down. Your world's been turned upside down. And maybe you're tempted. Like what is natural? It's natural. It's, it's, it's natural to be tempted when your world's turned upside down to say, should I keep going? And if so, why? Like, Where's the energy? Where's the motivation to keep going? Right? I just feel like quitting. Well, here's God, hear God's Word today. God is in control. He's not shocked by any of it. He's sovereign. He's bringing all things to an end. All of history is coming to a good end, a good completion. The King is coming one day. There's a second coming when all things will be made right. He's in control, though it sometimes doesn't feel like it or seem like it. Therefore, the Word is keep going. Keep being faithful. Keep pressing on and keep going strong. Second, Christ's second coming gives us hope in death. Even in death. Our death, the death of our loved ones, Christ's second coming gives us hope. When you experience the death of a loved one, it's startling, it's shocking. Even when you know it's coming, even when you're expecting it, it's shocking because it feels so permanent. And you feel like your loved one, you've been separated from your loved one forever. That's how it feels. We've had a lot of people in our church who've lost loved ones over the past year or two. right? And I've heard from them. They say to me, it's, it's the little things. Like I'm just used to him sitting in that chair at the kitchen table and he's not there anymore. Ever. Right? And, and, and something will happen in my day and I think I'm going to tell her about it. You know, Oh, I can't wait to tell her. Oh, wait, I can't tell her about it. Right? And so it is a permanency. There's a feeling of permanency, but we're reminded from God's Word this morning, it's not permanent. It's, it's, it's seasonal. It's temporary. Christ is returning. And when He returns, what's He going to do? He's going to gather. Not only gather His people to Himself, but gather His people to one another. A wonderful reunion. We, we have a song that we used to sing in seminary during graduation. We send graduates out to the mission field. And listen to this, the fourth line of this song, Soldiers of Christ in Truth Arrayed. It's actually in our hymnals. Uh, the fourth verse goes like this. We meet to part, but part to meet. When earthly labors are complete, to join and yet more blessed employ in an eternal world of joy. See, that's how the Christian faith works. We meet together. In fact, that's what we're doing today. We meet together. Why? Because we have a mission. We meet in order to part and accomplish our mission. But we part in order, why? To one day meet again. Not just here next Sunday, but one day in heaven together because the Lord has gathered us together. So perhaps some of you have loved ones that you've said goodbye to and you need to be reminded of this glorious truth. We meet. We meet together in order to part. There is a parting that comes. We live in a fallen world, a broken world. There's a parting that happens. We meet. We come together in order to part. But we also part in order to one day meet again. Christ's second coming gives us hope even in death. Third and finally, Christ's second coming reminds us of all that He's done. 
We should never think about the second coming without thinking about the first coming. We should never really think about the first coming without thinking about the second coming. They go together. You can't have one without the other. One doesn't make sense without the other is the better way to say it. Right? Now think about this. Jesus is standing here at His first coming. He's standing with, with the, a few disciples on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple, telling them the judgment of God is about to come down on this temple. But Jesus knows the judgment of God is not only about to come down on this temple, the judgment of God is about to come down on Jerusalem on Jesus at the cross, just outside the city walls. And it's not going to happen 40 years from when He's saying these things. It's going to happen in just a few days. Think about that. Jesus standing with His disciples, looking at the temple, telling them the judgment of God is coming on this temple, knowing also the judgment of God is coming on Him at the cross in just a few days. And He knows it. That's what's happening at the cross. Jesus is bearing the weight of our sin. Taking our sin, experiencing the punishment of God. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. That's what's happening at the cross. It's a day of judgment. That's why the skies go dark. It's God's judgment against sin set against the sun at the cross. But at the exact same time, that's not only a day of judgment, it's not only an event of judgment, it's also an event and a day of salvation, right? Because the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. His punishment, His, His sacrifice that He makes, the judgment He takes was ours. He takes it for us, so it's an act of judgment at the cross, but at the same time, it's an act of salvation. You can't ever divorce the two. Where you find judgment, you find salvation. Where you find salvation, you find Judgment, right? He took the blame. He bore the wrath so that we can stand forgiven at the cross. Why can we stand forgiven at the cross? Why is it a day of salvation? Because He took the blame. He bore the wrath. And so the message here is not the wrath of God is coming, therefore run to the mountains. That's what Jesus said to the disciples in that specific situation of what was going to happen to Jerusalem. That's not the message here. The message is not the judgment of God is coming, therefore run to the mountains. The message is, the judgment of God is coming, therefore flee to Christ, who experienced the judgment for you in your place at the cross. And if you do, when He returns, His second coming will be a glorious day for you. He will come and gather you up. We're going to sing here in a second about that day. One day, the trumpet will sound for His coming. One day, the skies with His glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one bringing, my Savior Jesus is mine. One day He's coming, oh glorious day. Make sure that day for you will in fact be a glorious day. How can you be confident? How can you be certain? Look to Jesus. Trust that He experienced the judgment that you deserve and you will experience salvation because of His judgment. Let's pray.